This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. You know, you can definitely tell as soon as we get more sunshine in the city, people are everywhere. So everyone is excited for the sun. And because we, you know, we're kind of deprived in the winter, we definitely are lacking vitamin D if we're not supplementing and if we don't have enough of it in our diet. And so, you know, as soon as the sun comes out, we get excited. And, like myself, sometimes we can forget how to actually protect ourselves. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness-related issues. On today's show, we're going to discuss healthy city growth and nimbyism. We're also going to discuss the prevention and treatment of natural sun exposure. Then we're going to bust some myths about reverse mortgages. And lastly, we're going to learn about the perfect wine pairings for plant-based food. But first, a bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and residential properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. I'd like to welcome our first guest. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums, and he's developed condominiums and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show, sir. Nice to be back. And you brought somebody with you today, is that right? I did. I brought uh, Chris Spoke with me. Chris Spoke. He's the Executive Director of Housing Matters. In 2017, Chris launched Yes in My Backyard, a housing availability and affordability advocacy organization. He's responsible for building and maintaining relationships with key stakeholders, including municipal councillors, members of provincial parliament, and industry associations. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. So we need both of you in today because we're, we're tackling a big topic, right? Housing, as big as it gets. <laughs> yep. And specifically what we're talking about is the ability of the city to move forward and address the situation of affordable housing in Toronto when faced with the problem of nimbyism. So for those who don't know, and I think most people know what it means, what does nimbyism mean to you, gentlemen? So nimbyism represents people in neighborhoods who oppose new development. Now, they say they don't oppose development writ large, just not when it's in their backyard, in their neighborhood. Uh, They have a big influence on municipal councillors. They affect what gets built, where, how tall, and are generally the stagnating force of cities. And we have these, these two major trends that we're experiencing. On one hand, people are moving towards cities. Young people want to work and live in cities and then kind of the existing residents often don't want them to move in. So so they're called NIMBYs. Right. And it is generational if you think about it, right? I, I, you know, Toronto, you know, used to think of it as sort of like a city, a melting pot of immigrants, which it still is, of course. But if you go downtown, it's a really youthful city. 
I think. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think when we look at NIMBYs and, and the corollary or the, the contrast that the YIMBY group, they don't really divide all that neatly along political lines, but they do somewhat demographically. So if you own a home and you've done well over the last 10, 15 years in your home equity value, you don't have any real push or incentive to move against the status quo bias and support new development and new housing. And if you're young, you're trying to enter the market, you're facing you know very expensive rents and, and the prospect of home ownership seems to be a, a, a dream that might not come to be, then you want homes. So, so definitely we see see that breakdown versus any other kind of obvious breakdown between the two groups. Part of the challenge that we see is that the goal in the city seems to keep the the single family neighborhoods really stable. Right. You don't see a creep of townhomes or stacked townhomes into single family neighborhoods. So people get this sense of ownership that their neighborhood is going to stay stable forever. The challenge is if you've got an area that's targeted for intensification next door to these neighborhoods, People think that they can overwhelm that part of the process as well because they've protected their own neighborhood, and this is close enough that we should have a say there as well. What parts of the city have been targeted for for the more intensified building? Is it along the subway routes primarily, or uh, primarily? I mean, the downtown core, obviously. Right. But then, you know, the province came up with a places to grow strategy a while ago and outlined five urban growth centers in Toronto. And you know, as an example, Young and Eglinton is one of them. Sure. And, and it's a uh, you know, those are major crossroads for transit intensification. It was based on, you know, if we're going to spend all this money on transit, let's intensify around it so we get ridership going properly. So there's been a lot of change in those areas. A lot of it has been positive, right. but the impact to people who live bordering it is seen as negative. Why? Because there's more traffic, there's right. more people, uh, right? There's more construction. These things are impactful. The combination of that paired with the actual transit construction can have a significant impact for a period of time. So people, after a period of time, even people who weren't vocal sometimes get frustrated and say, this is just too much for me. Right. And, and I think part of the problem is Toronto is a relatively young city. And so, you know, there was a lot of residential areas that were built, which, you know, if you look at it geographically, are pretty close to the downtown core, yet are considered straight single-family residential. I mean, neighborhoods like North Toronto and Rosedale and the Annex, etc., where you you might expect being along the main arteries like Bloor and Young and Eglinton and St. Clair, you would expect that sort of intensification of building, and yet there are these very established single-family type neighborhoods. You don't have to go back too far in terms of Toronto culture to sort of see the split that sort of still exists at a low level between older single-family residents and younger people who want to live in the core. I can remember hearing feedback, you know, a decade ago that anything north of Bloor was North Toronto, right? right? Yeah. And now you look at it, and, and I think there are many people who say that, you know, the borderline for Midtown Toronto is Shepherd. So the sense of the city is very different between people who have an established view of where the city was to where young and new residents in the city sort of see it going. Right. And, and I think, you know, even and if you're living in the 905, for example, you know, everything is downtown, right? Like, you know, I, I'm a Toronto boy, but I grew up right at the tippy top of the city at Steeles. And to me... You know, Midtown was Eglinton and downtown was anything south of Bloor. That's the historic approach to it. But I think now, I think you're right. I think the 401 or Shepherd sort of signifies what the city of Toronto is. And part of the problem, you're talking about NIMBYism, but the other part of the problem is is that the governance of the city is such that we have a city council where there's a lot of different members of the city council and it's politicized in terms of party politics to some extent, but really it's one person, one vote. And the mayor really for all intent and purposes doesn't have a ton of sway. Right. So 
how do things get done when everybody sort of has their own little fiefdom? So one thing we see just on that point, so so councillors obviously set a lot of the policy that governs what can be built in the city of Toronto. If you look at voting demographics, older people, homeowners, well-established people generally vote more than young renters. For sure. So the balance of power skews in favor of people who might just demographically be opposed to a lot of intensification. And yeah, the idea that we have this ward system in contrast to, let's say, Vancouver, where, where all councillors are considered at large, means that councillors have a pretty large incentive to get very deeply embedded with their community and the organized version of their community, which which is the Residents Association, and get elected by reflecting their interests and maybe pushing development out of their ward. But when this happens across 44 wards, everybody pushing it to another ward, ultimately we don't get enough built. And the consequence is, is not enough housing supply, rising prices, low rental vacancy rate. And, and to your point, we have a weak mayor system. So even if the mayor had this grand, broader strategy of what the city needs to grow as a whole, or how it needs to grow as a whole, He's, he's one vote in council and doesn't have all that much power. Well, historically, you know, there was a honeymoon period, right? A mayor would get elected and everybody would pretty much toe the line maybe for the first three or four months. But then it, it sort of becomes a question, where's the policy? You know, who, who's actually setting policy? Is it the bureaucrats in City Hall with the city plan? Or is there somebody with vision in council that can say, okay, yeah, you know, there's areas of the city where people aren't going to like, uh, you know, higher density building. But if we don't do this... Where are we going to get the people who are going to do the work? Like, who's, who's going to be able to afford to live here to do the work that everybody needs them to do to get the city to operate, right? right. Uh, one of the challenges to that is, you know, it's driven by the amount of, of growth and immigration to the city. Right. You can have a great strategy, and we've heard it a number of times over the last decade that, you know, the avenues was where the city should grow. We're, we've got the missing middle. We need mid-rise buildings. Right. It's a great strategy, but it's a piece of the puzzle because it can't happen quickly enough to keep pace with the growth of the city, right? So yeah. if you look at, you know, some of the avenues and you're talking about nine-story buildings, well, obviously it's harder to assemble a bunch of uh, smaller properties when all you can pay for is the value of a nine-story building. So it takes time to incent the old owners that, you know, if you're on St. Clair and you want to build a new building, you've got to all of a sudden talk to the barber who owns a three-story building on the street and you've got to get him and five of his neighbors assembled and going all for the benefit of building a hundred apartments. Well, it takes just as much time to do a similar thing where you could build a 40-story building. So time and time again, we get these good ideas, but they're not enough. We need a coordinated effort, I think, across the city to say there has to be high-rise development, there has to be mid-rise development, and there needs to be low-rise, more dense development on the fringe of neighborhoods. And it can't be just focused on one of them. And unfortunately, planning departments just have that many people, and they can get overwhelmed with the city's growing at the pace that this city is growing at. And when you look at the state of the world, there's no reason that the city shouldn't continue to grow at an incredible pace. Yeah, we, we like to say that municipal elections are mechanisms by which any pro-growth candidate gets filtered out and doesn't make <laughs> it. And I think that's reflected in who you see in city council. Now, historically, this has been checked by the province, a higher level of government, For through sure. this judicial check on what can be approved or rejected by the planning department, the OMB, which there have been some changes that is devolving a lot of that power. And right. even policies such as the Places to Grow Act that is kind of forced upon the city as, as a means of saying, look, it's time to grow up. We need to, we need to build enough homes for people to move here. There's this trend towards urbanization. So, so it's interesting.
interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. Often councillors use that provincial mandate as something to rail against and kind of organize the neighbourhoods against, again, a higher level of government. But without that higher level check, then we just see council reject projects that should be approved. Well, you, you mentioned something in passing, but I actually think it's it's crucial. I mean, it used to be with the OMB, there was an appeal process right. where developers could go and, and, and challenge, you know, site plan variances and, and you know, adjustments to this to the overall city plan. And, and there was a mechanism with some certainty. And then the system recently was it a couple of years ago, I, th- I believe, was changed so that the paradigm is different, right? The, right? the process has become even more challenging, I think, for developers. Isn't that the case or... Well, the local planning appeal tribunal right. is actually in place only as of June 1st of this year. And, okay. and my guess is that most cases that are still being heard, even though it's under the LPAT, are still being heard under OMB applications Correct. at the moment. Yeah. So we've yet to see the full impact of it, but it's going to be significant. And the timelines and the strategy and what gets approved and what doesn't, nobody's really sure yet. And it can have significant impact as to you know the pace of development. And we'll see. It, it could be something that works out well for the development community if it's focused more on provincial policy and, you know, logical things get approved. doesn't mean that every application makes sense in this city. So if it becomes a, a process that is more paper-driven rather than these expensive hearings, maybe it'll make sense, but it could also backfire in, to everyone's detriment if it slows down the pace of development, especially in the areas targeted for intensification. So the idea is that we need a judicial check on right. the politicization of... Politicization. Of, politicization of, of housing development. And when you hear opponents of the OMB, for example, say this is an unelected body, well, that's exactly right. We need an unelected body of professionals who can make professional planning decisions and not have the politics of NIMBYism determine how a city grows. Truthfully, though, it is a provincial issue because if you look at it, Toronto has become Manhattan in terms of livability, in terms of uh, travel and, and, and the way people approach life in the city. Like, I look at it as you mentioned, Mitch Shepard, as, as sort of being the edge. And I think, really, if you look at it, anything south of Shepard is pretty much, in terms of housing prices and the trajectory of how people are living, it's, it's like Manhattan in terms of, you know, where the car is going. You can't drive in the city anymore, which means you have to have transit to support it. You have to have transit outside the city in the 905 if you're going to create these bedroom communities because it, it, you've priced everybody out. So yeah. the, the net result is if we don't build in the city necessarily people will have to live outside the city, and we don't have that infrastructure either. But you've played into what we hear time and time again, because people who have lived for 30 years in a midtown neighborhood will respond to you and say, we don't want to live in Manhattan. But they are. I mean, they, they are. are. They, they don't right. realize it, it's but they com- are. Right. So that's the challenge. Some people are used to their way of life and unprepared to make way for the change that's needed to keep the city being vibrant and keep attracting young people and the type of creative class that makes it an interesting city and give them the chances to live within the heart of the city. So the easy thing when you see lots of changes to say, we don't want to be Manhattan, when the fact is, to a good degree, we're probably already there. Oh, I, I definitely think we are. So how do we fix it? Right. Like here we are. Right. If we're taking if we're Manhattan already, how do you fix it? Do we continue down that trajectory where, you know, everybody's living in condominiums and apartments and high rises? Or is there something that we can do to blend it in? Or what what, what would your solution be? 
I think one thing we need to look at is zoning. So we're, we're zoned for not a lot of growth. Every time a project pretty much needs to be rezoned about 80% of the time in Toronto to get approved. And what we need to do to depoliticize this uh, issue is to have more as of right zoning to allow for more buildings to be built at the scale that we need without having to go through this process of checking in with the community and making sure they're okay with the shadows. Mitch, anything you want to add to that? No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> That's why you brought them today, right? Exactly. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for coming in today, Chris and Mitch. Thank you. We're going to hear back from you next month, right, Mitch? Yep. Maybe Chris will come. Maybe he won't. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got to take a short break. But when we return, uh, we're going to learn all about sun exposure on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. At the Big Carrot, their wellness department has dozens of products to help protect you from the sun. They carry natural sunscreens for the whole family, free from harmful ingredients. And if you get burned by accident, they carry antioxidant supplements, aloe, and other products to soothe and hydrate your skin. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, and non-GMO sustainable food systems since 1983. On the Danforth, and now open in the Beaches community. For more information, visit thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being, with delicious food, movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations unfold. Welcome to The Tonic, Megan. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. So today we're going to talk about sun exposure, right? Yes. Let's start at the top. Should we avoid the sun at all costs? No, I I don't think so. The sun can be very good for you. However, like anything else that we can consume in this world, moderation is very important, right? Actually, no. You know, my family motto is more is better. (laughs) (laughs) So I struggle with moderation, but I understand you're you're, you're right. I'm just messing with you. Right, right. But but you're right. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, as someone who is a redhead, I definitely identify as purple skinned and I would even say see-through at some points of the year. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I'm missing some hair up top, so I've got to be careful too, right? Uh, So definitely for a complexion like mine, it is important to make sure that you are protecting your skin. But that's also important for uh, people who do have darker complexions. So I think that is one misconception that people have, that if you if you do have more pigment in your skin, you're kind of susceptible to no uh, skin damage. Right. No, I've been perpetuating that lie with my wife for years mm-hmm. because I'm kind of like, I wouldn't say green skin, but I have that olive Mediterranean tone to my skin, right. which means I tan really easily. But it doesn't mean that I'm not going to burn. Right, right. It's true. So uh, it is definitely important uh, that we do absorb some of the sun's rays, but we do have to make sure that we're we're doing it in moderation, like I said. So why is it important to yeah. absorb the sun's rays? Well, UVB 
rays, for example, are very important for vitamin D synthesis. Right. Okay. And so vitamin D um, is actually created in our skin and it acts like a hormone in the body. So when we absorb those UVB rays... There is a process that's going on in our skin that trickles down to our liver and essentially vitamin D is created. That's that's a very basic way of, of how it happens in the body. Right. And given our climate and how far north we are, there's only certain months of the year where you're going to get enough vitamin D from being in the sun, correct? Absolutely. Good point. So, you know, you can definitely tell as soon as we get more sunshine in the city, Torontonians are out. The streets right. are filled. People are everywhere. So everyone is excited for the sun, right? Right? And because we, you know, we're kind of deprived in the winter, we definitely are, are lacking vitamin D if we're not supplementing and if we don't have enough of it in our diet, right? And so, you know, as soon as the sun comes out, we get excited. And like myself, sometimes we can forget how to actually protect ourselves, right? right. And so I just want to share a, a funny little story with you. Last summer, I went out to Victoria, BC, and I went out to Alberta for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely beautiful out there. West Coast is, is gorgeous. And I went to Drumhead. Heller with my partner's family. So my partner is of Trinidadian descent. Mm-hmm. And I was obviously the pastiest one in the group. <laughs> <laughs> and because no one else was putting on sunscreen, somehow slipped my mind yeah. and I got a killer sunburn, right? right? And you know, it can happen to the best of us. It can happen to some a health to, expert, for exactly, example. Exactly, right? And yeah. I'm a nutritionist. I should know better. Yeah. But sometimes we slip up. So it is important, definitely after that sunburn that you get, which I definitely got, to remind yourself of the different ways that you can protect yourself. So what are those ways? Yeah. Let's let's get into that. Yep. Uh, so definitely sunscreen. Obviously. Um, yeah. Clean sunscreen. What do you mean by that? Clean sunscreen refers to sunscreen that doesn't contain, that isn't chemical based. So Unfortunately, a lot of the conventional sunscreens that we have out there on the market do contain chemicals that can be hormone disruptors. Okay. Right? And so it's it's kind of an interesting scenario because we want to make sure that we are creating vitamin D in our bodies, right. which acts as a hormone. But then if we're slathering ourselves in, you know, chemical-laden sunscreen that can disrupt our hormone activity, you know, it's not really working for us. So we want to make sure that we are enlightened when we are choosing our sunscreens. There's a really great resource um, that I do recommend to my clients, which is on the ewg.org website. So they actually create a sunscreen guide and they update it every year. So as a consumer, you can know which sunscreens are the best for you and your family. Okay. Okay? So other than sunscreen, what else would you recommend to protect yourself? Definitely long sleeved and, you know, wearing full length pants, but, uh, you know, lighter ones, because of course it's going to be hot. You don't want to be sweltering. Right. Um, So light, loose clothing that can cover your skin if you're not going to be wearing sunscreen, right? Also wearing a hat, um, also wearing sunglasses that do have UV protection as well. Okay. That's good advice. Now, are there times of the day where the UV rays are stronger versus weaker that we should be concerned about? For sure. So it's interesting. Between the hours of 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., the sun can be the strongest. This is also the point of the day where we have the most UVB rays. And it's the UVB rays that synthesize vitamin D in the body. Okay. Right? And so... So it's a yin-yang thing, It is kind of a yin-yang thing. So again, between this time, it is okay to get that sun exposure, but make sure that it's minimal and that you are protecting yourself. Right. Right. So when when the UV rating is quite high, yes, you want to make sure you're limiting yourself to maybe a half hour out in the sun, right? For sure. Isn't For that sure. sort of the rule of thumb? Exactly. Yeah. 
Okay. How else can we protect ourselves? Avoiding tanning beds is, I'd say, definitely an obvious yeah, that, one. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of people want to get that nice summery glow. You know, you want to be nice and, you know, have a nice tan. And I've definitely been told over the years that I should go get a tan, but <laughs> I simply can't, Jamie. <laughs> well, but, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, in our culture, we think of tanned as being healthy exactly. and, and, you know, everybody looks better with a tan. Exactly. And I think there's some truth to that, unfortunately, right? But, you know, the old saying is better to look good than to feel good. But then you have to know what you're getting yourself into if you're exactly. getting tan, right? Exactly. Exactly. So think of it this way. Do you want years and years and years of tanning to turn your skin into very damaged, leathery skin? Yeah, Maybe no, we don't not, want, right? We want to make not. sure that we have supple, hydrated skin, right? Um, and so we'll definitely be talking about hydration next month. But yep. You know, being sure that we are protecting ourselves for long-term health prevention. That's what holistic nutrition is all about, right? Long-term health prevention. And it's not just about food. It's also about our lifestyle. And that includes sun exposure. Okay. We know that all sunscreens aren't safe to use. So do you have some brands that you like that you would recommend? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Right now I'm using, it's by Continent Skincare. Okay. And uh, I believe it's called the Perfect Sunscreen. And I like it because most other sunscreens will go on and you are stark white. It doesn't matter what skin color you have, it goes on stark white and you look like a ghost, right? And so maybe not the most healthful looking. Right. (laughs) Uh, look that you could have. And so the nice thing about this perfect sunscreen um, is that it has a little bit of a tint. So you can put it on under your makeup if you wear makeup. Mm -hmm. You can wear it as is and it will give you a nice little glow. But the important thing is, is that it's clean and that it will protect you. Okay. Now, what is it rated to? Is it is it like a 30 or a 60? Or do you have a recommendation with respect to what sort of rating we should be looking for? This one, I believe, is 30. The important thing to note is that the higher the SPF does not necessarily mean the more protected you will be. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, believe so, it or not. No, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so typically anything beyond an SPF of 50 creates a marginal increase in protection. Wow, Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have my wife listen to this because she's a 60 girl. She right. won't go out unless she's wearing 60. Right. And growing up, you know, same thing. I thought that, you know, 60 and, and above was was my go-to. So, Aha. All right. Mm-hmm. Are there foods that we can eat that can help to protect our skin? Absolutely. So we want to make sure that we are choosing foods that are high in antioxidants. And so for this time of year, it's great because we have a lot of seasonal foods that will help us out. Such as? Berries. Love berries. Lots of seasonal berries right now. So load up on your strawberries, your blueberries, raspberries. Ra- I think it's raspberry season coming out right now. Yep. Yep. And definitely making sure that you're staying hydrated. Okay. So are there any foods other than berries that you would recommend? Absolutely. So we want to look at foods that are high in antioxidants, right? So those would be uh, vitamins A, C, E, selenium, and zinc. So we have our nuts and seeds. We have citrus fruits, definitely our dark leafy greens, and any fruits and vegetables that are really brightly colored, right? So think of like orange peppers, yellow peppers. Rainbow chard. Exactly. Rainbow chard. There we go. Uh, So foods like that, right, that have very bright colors. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming in today. I'm sure you've helped a lot of people uh, protect themselves from the sun and consider it. We'll have you back next month, right? Yes, definitely. And and when you come back, you mentioned we're going to talk all about hydration. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to bust some myths about reverse mortgages on The Tonic. 
And now the soul segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money and career are sure to be answered. Thank you for joining Soul Segment. This week, we'll be looking at how your career is shaping up this month by using the tarot cards. The first card that we're looking at is the Ace of Swords. This position is showing us the energy that has brought you to where you are now. Aces deal with the birth of something new, and Swords deals with actions and reactions, and they also deal with inspiration. The Ace of Swords is saying that in your career, you've had a birth of new inspiration, which can be pretty exciting. The next position is what you need to focus on now. It's the Chariot card. The Chariot is all about taking action while controlling where your Chariot is going, not allowing your Chariot to control you. Meaning, it's time for you to take control and take action while being mindful of the direction that you're going and where you want to end up. Once you do, you have the Fool card. It doesn't sound very positive, but the Fool is extremely positive because it means that you're going to start a new journey on a higher level. It also means that all of your hard work and determination, as well as your new direction that you're heading in, is going to bring extremely positive and exciting experiences into your life. So remember, you're in control of your chariot. It's going to new and exciting places. Good luck. Thanks for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. This has been the Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Purica. Purica wants you to turn its protein into your power. A blend of the finest vegan protein and the antioxidant powerhouse that is the pure chaga mushrooms. Purica Power features ingredients and enzymes designed to optimize digestion and absorption. Unlike many protein powders, Purica Power tastes great with water and mixes easily. It's available in chocolate, vanilla, and natural unflavored. From the Purica family to yours, Purica Power is a new way to make the most of every day. It's all part of the Purica commitment to making a positive difference in the lifestyle of its customers. Ask your favorite health food store for Purica Power Vegan Protein or visit Purica.com. Purica, nature, science, you. Are you recently retired? Do you own your own home? Are you looking for funds to pursue a passion project, to renovate your home, or finally to go on that European vacation? A loan from Home Equity Bank can help. A chip reverse mortgage is a tax-free lifetime loan for up to 55% of a home's value. Available to Canadians age 55 or older who own their home with a minimum property value of $150,000. Funds from a reverse mortgage can be taken out in a lump sum, scheduled payments or both. And remember, a homeowner who takes out a chip reverse mortgage will never owe more than the fair market value of their home. Check out homeequitybank.ca for more information. You're listening to The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. As Executive Vice President, Marketing and Sales, my next guest, Yvonne Ziemecki, is responsible for developing sales and marketing strategy, and she's the vision for Home Equity Bank. In 2016, Yvonne was recognized by Canadian Mortgage Magazine as part of the prestigious Women of Influence program with acknowledgement of her leadership and overall industry influence. Yvonne knows all there is to know about reverse mortgages. Welcome back to the show, my friend. 
Thank you very much, Jamie. Nice to be here. So today we're going to play a little game. Are you with me? I'm with you. We're going to do. We're going to bust some reversed mortgage myths because they they are out there, right? There are plenty of reverse mortgage myths. Absolutely. So we're going to start at the top. A lot of people think of reverse mortgages as a last resort form of financial assistance. Is that a myth or is that a truth? So. A lot of people think about it as a loan of last resort, but it's a myth. It's it's not true. You know, when th- people think about reverse mortgages, they have this image of a destitute senior in a dilapidated house, uh, really struggling to make ends meet, and. Uh, I don't know where where this thinking comes from, where these visual images come from. The reality is uh, many people use a reverse mortgage to pay off debts. It's true. Uh, but they also use it to uh, have some small freedoms in their life, go out for wings once a week, um, to pay for unexpected expenses, to help out their children. Uh, so it's not... Or, it's, or even take a trip, right? Like or, they, or even take a trip. And that trip can be a trip to see their grandkids out west. That trip can be to go back to their homeland or it could literally be, you know, the the dream trip of their life that they've always wanted to do, like a cruise or or, uh, or an extended vacation. Right. And, you know, a lot of these people have built up their equity over years and it's, you know, it's within their ambit to enjoy it when they can, when they have to, the time to actually live and take advantage of the wealth that they've built. You know, that generation, I find, has postponed things that that make them happy for so long. They made sure they raised their children. They right. made sure they looked after everybody else. This is the time where they can actually look after themselves and the house can help them do that. Well, that's good. Okay, so let's move on to the next myth. Reverse mortgages have high interest rates. Okay, so there has always been a lot of noise about reverse mortgage interest rates. And sometimes I hear people quoting high double digit rates, you know, 15, 17, 18 percent. Yeah, simply not true. But but here's what's true. So our rates are higher than a conventional mortgage rate, for sure. So if you go to the bank and get a regular mortgage, remember, you have to make mortgage payments on the conventional mortgage. With our product, we lend you the money. You don't make any mortgage payments until you sell the house or move out of the house that you no longer live there. So the product's a little different. It's a trade-off. It definitely is a trade-off. Many of our clients come to us with credit card debt. Credit cards are anywhere from 20 to high 20s. There, there's your double digits. Exactly. It's it's not us. And a lot of people in this demographic don't have the conventional lending choices. So the bank won't give them a line of credit, for example. So they go to private lenders. And private lending rates are also north of 10%. So currently our five-year rate is 6.5%. So it's not the same as, as I said, as the conventional mortgage. It's a lot less than they're paying in, in other ways. So is the reason they can't get the conventional loan is because they're they're not working typically, so they don't have the income to support the mortgage payments? Is that pretty much it? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the bank, in order to underwrite a loan for you, needs to make sure that you are able to debt service. Right. So if you don't have sufficient uh, income, if you don't have pension income, if you don't have savings, you can't demonstrate that you, you can make those payments. Even with the equity in your house, it, even they, it doesn't. It actually doesn't matter how much equity you have. Is it? It's all about can you debt service? And our product, you don't debt service. You don't make any payments. So it's all about equity for us. Right. Okay. So another myth is is that if one were to take a reverse mortgage, they'd have to be paid out in lump sum. No. 
So simply not true. That's actually an easy one. So we know that a lot of older Canadians are very conservative. Again, going back to they worked really hard, they accumulated wealth. So if we approve someone for three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, number one, they don't need that much money. Right. And number two, it's really overwhelming because they they've been conservative, they're very prudent, and they're managing um, their own finances. So on average, our client takes hundred thirty thousand dollar mortgage. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's to pay out as we talked about pay out other debts or, or travel or, or help their children. And then what we do is we offer the rest for them to come back at any time and draw from. So they can come back every year and, and take $10,000 for an annual trip that they want to take. Mm-hmm. They can decide to draw $1,000 a month just to supplement that. their income. We have people who are using this product to pay for medical expenses. So someone is unwell, they're in a home and they need help. And, you know, nursing nursing care is not cheap no, it and it's not covered um, in general. So people will take money from, from the reverse mortgage and supplement their monthly fees that way, which and, is and I would, smart. And I would presume that some people are even using the money to retrofit their house so they can continue living there by putting oh. in ramps and, and all sorts of different devices, correct? So absolutely. So, you know, you could get your $130,000 up front and then you can say, you know, this this takes care of immediate needs. Now we need to retrofit. We need a ramp. We need widened doors. We need bathroom. We find those costs are not insignificant, about $50,000 oh, sure. if you want to do it right. And uh, so, you know, why not stay in the home that you love? And it's actually also good for your mental health, right? Staying in the community, being connected to everyone. It doesn't do people any good when they get unwell to move away from, from a place where they've been comfortable. There are a lot of studies out there showing uh, that the secret to longevity is actually staying in the neighborhood that you're comfortable with because your services are there, your neighbor neighbors perform um, the job of extended family. If your kids have moved away, but you know that your neighbor across the street can help you shovel the driveway, for example, you're going to want to stay in that and neighborhood. And you feel safe. And it's just the regular routines also are, are, can be very, very uh, satisfying for them, for sure. Okay, so next myth, that if uh, you take a reverse mortgage, you may lose your home. So... You know, this really drives me crazy because people like to use scare tactics with seniors, with yeah, older Canadians. That's unfortunate. And and the other reason why this drives me crazy is there's a lot of spillover from U.S. And unfortunately, the product is very different in the in the States. It's not regulated the same way that oh, it's regulated that. in yeah. Canada. And there have been some media articles about uh, seniors being taken out of their homes when they had a reverse mortgage south of the border. So I have to, this question comes up all the time. I have to always explain it. Our product is simple. We ask you to do three things and we ask you to, so number one, you have to pay your property taxes, right. you know, because utilities, th- make that's sure what you're you up have to, to do. Yep. You have to have a valid insurance because we're giving you a mortgage. So your house has to have insurance. Correct. And we ask you to keep it in, in good standing. So, you know, not to, not to sound light, but you know, it needs to have a roof and needs to have windows. Other than that, we don't really get involved in in how you're living your life. And the product is set up in such a way that actually allows you to stay in your home as long as you want. So, but, it, people- but it's in the it's in the owner's best interest to keep their house up because at the end of the day, the the better they keep their house up, the, the more equity there is exactly uh, going forward. Yeah. Right? This isn't the business. You know, there are products like this in Europe where companies actually take ownership of the house. Right. I think some of those myths and misunderstandings come from both U.S. and Europe. Okay, so the next myth is that there are high fees associated with a reverse mortgage. 
So again, you know, south of the border, U.S., a reverse mortgage may cost you north of $10,000 to oh, set wow. up. So that would be high, right? Right. For us, it's a lot simpler. So there are three types of fees that uh, someone who's taking out a product needs to consider. So number one, their property needs to be appraised. So mm -hmm. we ask people to pay for appraisal. Here's a great plug for Carp and Zoomer. We actually offer a rebate for any uh, Carp and Zoomer members to up to $250 towards appraisal. So you can find out how much your house is worth. But this would be with any financing. No, any financing. No bank is going to offer no. any type of loan without... Uh, Understanding how much the house is worth. Correct. Absolutely. Oh, sorry. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we ask people to pay for legal costs. $17.95 is our current fee. This is when title gets checked. We make sure everything is clean, um, lawyers prepare documents, etc. That uh, is no different from a conventional mortgage. Are the lawyers representing the lender in this instance, or are they representing the borrower in that instance? Great question. So in this instance, they're representing us preparing the paperwork. The third fee we ask people to pay is to get independent legal advice. So they actually take the paperwork prepared by our lawyers to their own lawyer and their own lawyer walks them through what they're signing up for, what are the terms. And I think, you know, it's beneficial for the client. It's beneficial for us. Uh, given that our average client age is 71 years old. Well, I, you know, speaking as a former commercial litigator, I can tell you <laughs> it's it's extremely important. This is a big decision and there's big dollars involved and you just simply don't want to go into a transaction like that without getting advice. It's, it's, it would be foolish to do otherwise. Absolutely. So, you know, the fees are seventeen ninety five. I don't I don't think they're extremely high. And for the type of work, the legal work that, that gets prepared, I, I think they're very fair. Okay, well, thank you for coming in today. We don't have any more time to go through the myths, but I think you've done a really good job of explaining uh, the process. So thank you for coming in. Thank you very much, Jamie. Always great to be here. We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to learn all about wine pairings for plant-based foods on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic talk show, you'll love Tonic magazine and vice versa. And now, time for Pure Beauty. Learn all about holistic skincare and health featuring chemical-free ingredients. Here's naturopathic doctor and co-founder of Pure and Simple Beauty and Wellness Centers, Dr. Kristen Ma. Today, we're going to go over four tips to eating for rosacea. For those of you who aren't familiar with rosacea, it's a skin condition characterized by facial redness, often seen with dilated and broken capillaries. While it's categorized as a skin disease because of the involvement of the facial blood vessels, it's strongly influenced by our cardiovascular system. This means that what inflames and dilates your capillaries exacerbates your rosacea as well. This is why it's important to avoid inflammation, including that which is caused by what we eat. So let's start on these tips. Tip number one, avoid hot spice, alcohol, and caffeine. You'll find them on lists of common rosacea triggers because they tend to dilate our facial capillaries. This coincides with dietary guidelines in Eastern medicine, which says that hot spices, coffee, and alcohol increase our internal heat in the body. You can see this in real life as some of us actually get flushed and sweaty after a spicy meal. Tip number two, investigate your food sensitivities. 
Rosacea sufferers should investigate their individual food sensitivities because mild allergies and intolerance can be a source of ongoing inflammation. One area to explore is histamine-rich foods. Histamine is part of an inflammatory response and increases blood flow within it. It's been seen that rosacea sufferers often flare up from high histamine foods such as citrus fruit, fermented foods, tomatoes, and cured meats. But it's not only about signs of allergy to pay attention to, but also foods that are hard to digest. Any foods that have your digestion working on overdrive or under distress is a source of inflammation. Tip number three, monitor your hydration and sugar levels. Hydrating foods are first line of defense. Keeping your skin hydrated through water-rich fruits, veggies, and good water intake helps maintain your skin's barrier function. This just means it's less vulnerable to irritants. With this, maintaining a healthy, stable blood sugar is also important. Studies have seen that people with high blood sugar also have increased inflammatory markers. And finally, tip number four: It's not only what you eat, but how you eat it. Your cooking methods matter. Maintain hydration in meals by steaming instead of deep frying or barbecuing. These methods cook out water content and can be harder to digest. Coming back to Asian medicine, here it said that superheating foods also contribute to more internal heat. So those were my top four tips to eating for rosacea. Remember, beauty isn't just about skincare, but an entire healthy lifestyle. This has been Pure Beauty with Dr. Kristen Ma. Learn more and ask questions about holistic beauty and their wellness centers through their Facebook page at pureandsimple.ca. This segment should not take the place of medical advice. Always talk to your healthcare provider about personal health concerns. The tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Tom Gore Vineyards tells the story of the farmer's role in winemaking. For farmer and winemaker Tom Gore, great wines start in the vineyard, coaxing the vines to produce grapes with exceptional varietal flavor, yielding high-quality, complex wines with a true sense of place. Tom Gore wines pair beautifully with fresh summer fare and are meant for evening sharing stories around the table with family and friends. Discover Tom Gore Sauvignon Blanc and Tom Gore Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a difference you can taste in your glass. You're listening to The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Ivana Raka, got her start at the age of 17 in celebrity chef Mark McEwen's North 44 restaurant. Working up the ranks, she was appointed as the first female executive chef of the food emporium at McEwen Foods at the age of 24. In 2015, Ivana opened up her own restaurant, Raka Cafe in Parkdale, which was nominated for Best New Restaurant in 2016 by Now Magazine and ranked 88th by Canada's 100 Best Magazine. She later opened the universally acclaimed pescatarian restaurant Ufficio. Most recently, she's partnered with Food Network Canada's Brad Smith to open Resto Boamo in Toronto's Assembly Chef's Hall. 
Welcome to the show, Chef. Thank you so much for having me. So one thing about your restaurant, which I go to frequently, no BS, I'm there all the time, is that it's very vegetable forward. It's a pescatarian restaurant. And you have an extensive wine list there. And I'm always intrigued, you know, what's the process of pairing wine with plant-based foods. What, what is that challenge? So we wanted to not just have a pescatarian restaurant. We wanted people, uh, I think, vegetarian and vegan is just very important. I think it's not just a trend. I think it's a way of uh, uh, going down into or 10 or 20 years of in the future. And uh, we wanted to uh, accompany uh, with the great meals that we have, that everything's made from scratch, to having great wines. And uh, definitely these were the wines that fit perfectly to match you know, our vegan plant-based dishes and our, and our sides. I think it's just delicious. So what what are the challenges and the considerations when you're trying to pair wines with, with plant-based foods? Of course. So I think a lot of people will pick a stronger wine. So I think, you know, if you do a nice uh, white, um, you do uh, light vegetables. And I think in Italy and on the Mediterranean, I'm a big fan of doing a lot of greens and matching it with a wine. So it doesn't have to have a protein and a vegetable. It could just be, you know, with the um, with the Cabernet, with the Tom Gore ones, I do a buckwheat pasta with a smoked mozzarella vegan cheese and chantry mushrooms, collard greens, things that sound bold, but also don't um, overpower the wine. So it just matches perfectly together. Okay. And and so when you're trying to pair wines with plant-based foods, I'm sure there's some pitfalls that you can fall into. So what are some common mistakes that people make? Of course. So um, I think when you're looking at a white wine, so you want to have something with acidity, crispiness, uh, light, doesn't overpower, balance out the flavors. So what I did was I brought you a gazpacho that goes really well with a Sauvignon Blanc. You're going to get invited back. (laughs) Anybody that brings me food (laughs) gets invited back to the show. And and for all you listening out there, if you're going to be on the show, bring me food and then you'll get invited back awesome so yeah the gazpacho is a golden gazpacho which I've paired with the Tom Gore Sauvignon Blanc and it's just golden crisp uh, light and acidity Mm -hmm. and balances out the flavor so in a summer hot day uh, you know it could be a whole meal or it could just be a side or an appetizer to begin with Um, so I'm a big fan of light vegan or vegetarian dishes and, Mm -hmm. and my boyfriend's vegan so it's nice to eat three times a week or four times a week Uh, vegan because I feel good and I feel great and then it's also really interesting to see what his motto is and and be you know a lot of people will get turned off oh wow your boy you're a chef and your boyfriend's vegan and I'm like no well I think it's it's a turn on for me most chefs don't tolerate vegans exactly and I I found it very impressive that that he knows the knowledge of his food and and so I brought um I brought Tom Gore and wines I brought the white and the red and uh we did some cooking at home and and it was I was very pleasantly surprised at how much of knowledge that you know about it, pairing it up with food. Cool. So your restaurant is pescatarian yes. with, with an Italian influence. There's lots yes. of pastas and crudos. The Italians seem to understand how to match food with vegetables. Like I, I've spent some time in Tuscany and, you know, it's very vegetable forward. It's peasant food. It's they, beautiful. They, they do a great job. Are there other wine regions that get it? I think most of Italy gets it. I, I think it's the way they were taught, and I, I think it was it, it was always in their tradition. So, uh, you know, having a first course and a second course and a third course in Canada, I feel like we're starting to see that, you know, with the first, with the second, with more having four meals or sharing and doing like vegetable plant bases instead of just having one meal with a protein, veg, and a starch. Those uh, days are over. I yeah, think. I had uh, Vito Marinuzzi of Seven Numbers on a little while back, mm-hmm. who's a friend of mine, yep. po- a poker buddy, and 
and we were talking about the differences in the way the Europeans the living. Uh, uh, their approach to restaurants and and just the way the meals are put together and in particular how the wines sort of mesh with it. It's, and it's, they all look great and uh, they always drink every day. Right. <laughs> they drink and they drink a, a lot of they meals. They work a little. <laughs> and, and they're not out of shape and they all look no. good. So they must be doing something. And they right. enjoy. I think that's what it is, is they enjoy food. Right. They enjoy what's in their food, cooking it, and then matching great wine with it. I mean, if you're in Florence, there's nothing better than, than sitting with a family or or with your other half and, and enjoying a great wine with, with, with veggies, with meat with you know whatever complements each other and just having a good time yeah so you mentioned that your 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 partner is 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 vegan yes. so is it hard to pair wines for him like that or, or raw food too is another one yes i think he was quite picky at the beginning but once i brought um this was a great opportunity so once i brought the the red and the whites and we did some cooking together and i i kind of wanted to know what was inside his head and his knowledge maybe you know i was like well maybe he knows maybe he doesn't and i was quite surprised of, of his knowledge and I'm like okay well he gave me the basics of rundown what he looks for like the the, the, um, the tannins and the bold and, and the refreshing and, and how he balances out because he does eat a lot of veggies and you don't have that meat you know or right. protein to save you See, I would have thought without the meat, the richness of the meat, you wouldn't necessarily want to go with a wine with more tannins. But you're saying it's it's quite the opposite. So I think with the buckwheat pasta that I do with the chanterelles and, yep. and the greens, it's really earthy. And then the smoked mozzarella vegan cheese, it just goes so well with the cab. And at first, I wasn't sure when, you know, testing out the recipes and what will go. Um, it sounded great in my head. But once I tested it out, it, it just seemed to match perfectly. And I was quite uh, surprised by that. Okay, so um, what are your favorite wines uh, to match up with plant-based foods? Um, well, Tom Gore, and I'm not a big drinker, but I do enjoy a, a glass of the Sauvignon Blanc, and I always have that in my fridge. I'm right. not a huge fan of uh, reds. I just really i get i get uh, I get quite emotional, overly emotional. So I'm a big fan. What of, does that of the mean? White. <laughs> are you are you a messy red wine I'm drinker? I'm not a messy. I'm just a little too emotional, so I hold that hold that back and bring it out once in a while. Okay. Okay, fair enough. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We'd love to have you back again. When you come awesome. back? I would love to, and I'll bring some more food your way. You got it. That's what I was aiming for. And thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Megan Horsley, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at www.tonictoronto.com. You know, I've been publishing Tonic Magazine for over 11 years. At the front of every issue, I write a brief note which sets the theme for that issue. I actually think it's the most important page in the magazine as the note allows me to connect with tonic readers figuratively in that they can look behind the curtain to see my thoughts on the articles and columns and literally in that I can provide some contact information so that people can reach out to me. It occurred to me that I haven't provided the listeners of this show with the same courtesy. Now that we've ramped up the show from 30 to 60 minutes, it's even more important for me to get feedback on the tonic to ensure the quality of the show in both its conception and execution. To that end, please feel free to reach out to me if you like something you've heard on the show. Or, and I can't imagine this would be the case, if you don't like something that you've heard on the show. You can contact me if you have ideas for segments. Or you might even have an idea for guests. Or you might even want to be interviewed on the show yourself. Or market your business or organization on The Tonic. 
If for whatever reason you might want to reach out, except if you're looking for a loan, please email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. That's J-A-M-I-E at T-O-N-I-C-T-O-R-O-N-T-O dot com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll learn how to enhance your brain power. We'll discuss the top healthy pantry staples, the myth of sexual normalcy, how to keep healthy through the summer, and opioids versus medical marijuana. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.